If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. If you don't have a copy, there should be a copy in the pew in front of you, in the seat back in front of you. This morning we continue our journey through Genesis and we get ever closer to the end of this book. As we draw ever closer to the end of Genesis, we are continuing to see God's promises and prophecies coming true. And since we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God still keeps his promises. God had said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants here, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. Genesis fifteen, thirteen, and fourteen. God is now in the passage before us today, starting to fulfill this prophecy. He had promised Abram that his family would be serving another nation. And, and, and living in another country for 400 years. And then th- that at the end of that time, God would bring them out and bring them back to the promised land. Well, in order for that to happen, they must move to Egypt. Elohim had been sovereignly orchestrating this since Joseph had been sold into slavery by his ten older brothers. Some 22 or 23 years earlier, So in this passage that we are considering today, we will see Israel moving to Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless your word, that you would send it forth in power, and that you would receive the glory that is due your holy name, that you would use your word to change hearts and lives, and that you would make us, Father, the Christians you've called us to be that you would save the lost and edify your saints. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're not going to read the the entirety of chapters 45 through 47 uh, for the sake of time, but we're going to try to cover the the information and the, the things that we have been given by God in this passage. It is my hope and prayer that we will even more clearly see and acknowledge the mighty, sovereign hand of God, faithfully orchestrating the affairs of men to accomplish his own good pleasure. And and I must say there, God working in the affairs of man, he doesn't just work in the affairs of the church. He doesn't just orchestrate the affairs of the believers, the saints, but he orchestrates all the affairs of mankind. As we can see in this passage, it wasn't just his people uh, that he was orchestrating these events for. It was also the Egyptians and those of other nations. God is, he not only uses supernatural means, but more often than not, God uses ordinary means. He uses ordinary people. And he uses our circumstances to accomplish his will. Often when we think of God, we think of God as always doing miraculous things. 
You know, we think of God as creator. What a miraculous thing that was, creating everything from nothing. Uh, how much more miraculous, though, than creation is the salvation of one lost soul. Because the Bible calls that recreation. And God sovereignly does that by the power of His Word. Just as He spoke everything into existence at the beginning of time, so too the Word of God has the power to save the lost. We always have high and lofty uh, ideas about God, which are, which are right. But a lot of times we fail to consider that God is quietly behind the scenes orchestrating everything that happens using common means, ordinary people, our circumstances, what the, where we find ourselves in life. We call this providence. I hope that we can clearly see the words penned much later by the Apostle Paul worked out in this historic account. Remember, Paul wrote, And we know that God causes all things to work together for His good, for, for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to His purposes. And so we'll see that very thing worked out in our passage today. Even though the Apostle Paul wouldn't pen those words for hundreds and hundreds of years, we can see that concept of God providing for and taking care of and blessing His people. We left off in verse 15 last, last week, and so we pick, pick up in verse 16 of chapter 45. We know that in the first 15 verses, Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers. They had been afraid, and rightly so, because they had, some 22 years earlier, sold him into slavery. And now he's the second most powerful man in the country, in the nation of Egypt. But J Joseph was very gracious to them. He was very kind. He was forgiving. He was loving. He, he informed them and he assured them that they had no need to fear him because he understood what they meant for evil, God had meant for good, to provide salvation, as it were, for not only um, his family, but for the nation of Egypt. Salvation from the famine, physical salvation, not, not spiritual salvation. So the news of this reaches Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's happy. He he's he he really um, he really likes Joseph. Joseph has been a godsend to him and his country. And so Pharaoh's happy that Joseph has been reunited to his family. And so he tells Joseph to to go and, and move his entire family to Egypt. And he says that you you can have the best of what Egypt has to offer. Uh, you can have the fat of the land, so to speak. Um, Whatever land is best here, I, I give to you and your family. And he even sends the Pharaoh, even commands Joseph to send carts uh, laden with uh, food and provisions and gifts for the trip and, and uh, wagons to carry the women and the children uh, back to Egypt. Joseph complies with Pharaoh's wishes. Joseph knows that he cannot leave and go back to the land that God had promised to his fathers, to his covenant people. So he does the next best thing. He brings the covenant people to where he is. Now, here I've heard people describe this. 
you know, everything was going good till Joseph drug his family to Egypt. <laughs> well, that was God's plan. That was God's plan. Joseph didn't drag anybody anywhere. He was, he was the one that was drugged to, to Egypt as a slave. But now he's bringing his family to him in Egypt. Now notice, it's, it's hard to get past the favoritism that is constantly shown in this family. Remember uh, the favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph as his favorite son. And then um, the favoritism that Joseph has already shown to his, his full brother, Benjamin. Remember all the rest of his brothers are half-brothers, right? They have different mothers, but the same father. But Benjamin has the same mother and father. And so Joseph had lavished extra food on him when they, when they ate at the banquet. And now he, he gives all of his brothers gifts. He gives them all a change of clothes, uh, uh, new garments. But he lavishes on his brother Benjamin once again uh, more than he had given his other brothers. Plus he gives them money. And so it's no wonder that when he sends them home to get their father, his departing words to them are, are what? Do not quarrel on the way. Okay. He, he had already tested their loyalty, but now he, he warns them, look, don't let this, this pop up again. Don't, don't quarrel on the way. John Phillips writes at this verse, they were on their journey home. It was to be a long, tiresome road. By the way, it was approximately 300 miles on foot with donkeys and wagons. Okay, so you can tell that journey would take a while. Phillips continues, Perhaps they would squabble among themselves, even become envious, after all, of Benjamin's unique gifts. For though they had all been recipients of Joseph's grace, goodness, and gifts, they were not yet safely home. Thus Joseph bade them guard well their tempers and their testimony. End quote. We too, as Christians, have been recipients of God's grace, God's goodness, and God's gifts. Like the brothers, our journey home is not yet complete. We are to guard our lives so that we glorify God in all that we do. Do not quarrel on the way, dear ones. So the brothers are returning home. And when they, when they reach home, we read, they give the good news to their father. And what does Jacob do? Jumps up and down for joy, right? Well, let's look at verses 25 and 26. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. What is that? I mean, he was, you know, some people say that he 
he might have uh, momentarily his heart stopped maybe more I'm telling we don't we don't know all that we don't speculate but we know that he was stunned with the news it was a shock to him he didn't believe them you know uh, remember the last time they had given him uh, several times they had given him news the first time they had given him news about Joseph when they had lied about Joseph right and so he doesn't believe that they're telling the truth here. Philip Eveson writes that Israel already expected to go down to Joseph in death, that is in Sheol, mourning, and was fear, fearful that if some calamity happened to Benjamin, the same would happen. Instead, he was to go down to Egypt to see Joseph alive and well, and the agent of God's salvation for his own family and those of other nations can only imagine what's going through his mind when he hears the news and he's just in total disbelief this can't be i have been living the past 22 23 years thinking that my son is dead but chapter 45 concludes with these words and israel said it is enough Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. He saw all the carts and the provisions that had been sent. And thus, he believed that Joseph was still alive. The next thing we see when we pick up in chapter 46, we see Israel moving. He's starting on this journey. He's heading towards Egypt. And he stops in Beersheba. Now, he sees probably the altar that Abraham had built there, maybe even the altar that his own father Isaac had built there, and that gives him occasion to worship. Now, we haven't been told that Jacob worshipped since chapter 36, right? Pastor Tyler referenced it in his, his study on family worship. You know how Jacob had told his family, get rid of all your foreign gods and sanctify yourselves and cleanse yourselves and put on clean garments because we're going to worship the one true God. Now, we haven't been told, now, that doesn't mean Jacob hasn't been worshiping for the past 22 years, but we haven't been told about it. Now, this is the first mention that he's worshiping, and it's significant because in this act of worship, God will appear to him in a dream. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you down to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God's promise to Israel was fourfold. One, he had promised Abram and he had extended that same promise to Isaac. And then again, he had extended that same prom promise to, to Jacob that he would make them a great nation. He had promised them land, the land of Canaan. But here he says, I'm not going to make you a great nation here in the land of Canaan. 
I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. The second part of this promise is that God said, I myself will go with you. Now he had, I'm sure Jacob remembered the stories of when his grandfather Abram had went to Egypt and got himself in trouble. I'm sure he recounted um, the stories of when Isaac was tempted to go to Egypt because of a famine and God had commanded Isaac not to go to Egypt. So you, you, you have to, this whole thing about the land, the promised land, the promise of the land. You know, even when Jacob had to flee to, and go to Padam Eran to, to get away from his brother, what did God promise? God promised to bring him back to this promised land. And so here God is, is dispelling any doubts that Jacob has, that Israel has. He says, go. Don't be afraid to go. Go down to Egypt. I will go with you. That same, remember the, 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 the ladder dream, Jacob's ladder? God had promised to go with him, to be with him, to protect him. And so he's reiterating that promise here. I myself will go with you. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be very reassuring. <laughs> Knowing that God says that he himself will go with you. Well, dear ones, Jesus has said the same thing to you and to me. If you are a believer, he has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. The end of the age when he returns. The third part of his promise to Israel is, I will bring your descendants out of Egypt back here to this land of promise. In other words, I'm not sending you to Egypt because I changed my mind. I'm still promising you this land. I promise it to Abram, I promise it to Isaac, and I promise it to you. And I will keep that promise. So don't worry about going down to Egypt. Because I will still keep my promise. I will bring you out, uh, out of Egypt. And the fourth part is you will get to see your son Joseph before you die. Notice here he says, and Joseph will close your eyes. In other words, Joseph would be the one to do that last respectful deed for his father. Upon his father's death, Joseph would close his eyes. His own hand. And so there would be a reuniting, a reuniting with Joseph and his father, Israel. Alan P. Ross writes, After he had sacrificed to the Lord at Beersheba, Israel received confirmation from the Lord about the move. In a night vision, the Lord reiterated the promise that he would make Israel into a great nation and that he would deliver his people from Egypt. This vision would have encouraged not only Israel, the patriarch, but also the nation of Israel. Later, when they were preparing to leave the land of Egypt to return to Canaan. The revelation was clear. God was with them. And so the promise would be fulfilled and delivered. End quote. And so next we're given after God appears to uh, Israel, uh, to Jacob, and promises that he will go with him to Egypt. Now we're given a genealogy, a list of names uh, of those folks that went to Egypt. 
Named are all his descendants. All Of all who are named, we know that, of course, Ur and Onan, two of Judah's sons, didn't go to Egypt because they died in the land of Canaan. Remember, we read that story in chapter 38. Rachel also died in Canaan. Of course, this list does not include his son's wives. Some of the names on the list will be born later in, in Egypt. Okay, what's important is that this list of this list of names will come into play and during the Exodus when when the tribes are numbered as they go back and they trace their genealogies. Okay? So that's why this list was important here. It, Seventy is a round number, it's a significant number. Um we don't have any cause to think that although uh, Benjamin has been listed as having 10 sons, that they were all born at this time because he was still quite a, a young man at this time. But uh, just as uh, the Bible tells us that um, Levi uh, paid uh, tithe to Melchizedek, well, Levi wasn't even around when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. But he was a descendant of Abraham. So he paid tithe through Abraham, being one of his descendants. And so we would look at these names and say, they're included in this list, even if they're not born yet, because they are represented in their fathers, in, in this, these heads of the nation of Israel. These 12 brothers will become the heads of 12 tribes. This, in effect, is Israel in infant form as a nation. Before they had been Israel the family. And now they are Israel the nation in infant form as they grow and progress in the land of Egypt. Of special interest in this genealogy is Perez. Remember, Perez is Judah's son by Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. We read and learned about that in chapter 38. What's more important about Perez, though, is that he is in the lineage of David. And what's more important is that he is in the lineage of David's greater son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. This is what the infant nation of Israel looked like when they had first arrived in Egypt. We read in verses 26 and 27, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. In other words, his entire family. There was none left, none, none left alive in the land of Canaan. All his, his family who were alive came to Egypt with him. And next we have Jacob's long lost, long longed for reunion with his long lost son. Once again, we see Judah taking on a prominent role. And that he was sent to inform Joseph of the arrival of the family in the land of Goshen. Now, we think of Egypt as a city, right? Usually when we, in this context, we think of Egypt as a city, you know. 
the pharaohs got his palace and all the people there in the city, right? But Egypt was a country, just as it is today. I don't know if the, the boundaries are the same. But it spread out. The majority is concentrated, however, on the Nile River. Because the rest is sand. The rest is desert. And so to, to have life, you need water. Well, at the end of the Nile, before it goes into the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, it splits up into several different tributaries. That's called the Nile Delta. And the land of Goshen is on the far eastern side of the Nile Delta, which was probably close to the city, but not on top of the city. It was a very touching reunion. You know, Jacob and Joseph embraced each other and wept for a long time. And then Joseph makes the statement, I have seen you now, now let me die. Now he's not saying, okay, I want to die. Okay, he's not being morbid in those words. He's just saying, now I can die a happy man because I have been reunited with my long lost son. We see a picture of that in the New Testament, don't we? And the story of the prodigal. What was the father's reaction when his son returned? Was it anger? Was he scolding his son for his riotous living? No, he ran to him. He embraced him. He gave him a new garment. He put a ring on his finger. He accepted him openly and willingly back into the family. Jacob had lost his son, and now his son was alive. And he had been reunited with him. But we see this, the words of Jacob here, the words of Israel, that I may die in peace. We, we say that elsewhere in the New Testament too, don't we? T turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. You know the story. Jesus is an infant. He's brought to the temple to fulfill the, the, the rites that were required. And there's this man called Simeon in the temple. Let's start in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought up him, which is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That means they were poor. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, before he had seen the Messiah. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him, Simeon, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That was a happy moment 
for this man. And just it was a very happy moment for Jacob being reunited with his son. Now he says, I can die a happy man. But there's also something more important here with this reunion. You remember Abraham had been commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac? And God had delivered Isaac by providing a ram? In that, Abraham had figuratively received his son Isaac back from the dead. And so now, Jacob also figuratively receives his son Joseph back from the dead. And these point us to a more important event. Because in the fullness of time, God the Father brings His only begotten Son back from literal death. Not figuratively. Christ was not figuratively raised from the grave, but physically, literally raised from the dead. He was raised in power and glory. And we are given a short glimpse of what that reunion uh, with the Father looks like in the Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And I believe that's a picture of Christ's return to the Father and glory. But we're also told in the New Testament that He was taken up in glory, which we read as our call to worship. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so we have an earthly view of a reunion that will take place, has taken place in heaven. Okay, A, a father who has lost his son and has getting, gotten him back. A, a father, more importantly, who has sent his son to die. To die for the sins of his people. And then has received him back into glory. As Christ said, glorify me as I have glorified you. Christ was so glorified. And the father has bestowed on him what? A name that is above every name. The name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So even in this wonderful reunion we see back in Genesis, we can see the, the hints at least of the gospel message as we are pointed forward to Christ. And so Jacob has been reunited with his son Joseph. The family is all together in Egypt. Now notice, Joseph is, is a wise ruler. 
He's, he's wise in all his dealings. Uh, and we know this wisdom wasn't just his. It, it was given to him by God, I'm sure. This is one of the blessings of God on his life was this great wisdom. But he prepares his family to meet Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh had already said they could have the best of the land, but he wants to ensure that. And so he, he tells them, look, when you go before Pharaoh, tell him your shepherds. So he will give you the land that's more suitable for your flocks. Why? And then they, they have this curious statement. Uh, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we're not even going to go there. Because there's so many different speculations and all these different commentators and commentaries. It's, it's probably because the Egyptians were more um, agricultural, if you will. They relied more on growing crops. Okay, uh, The Nile River was their source of life. The springtime floods would water their, their uh, fields so that they could grow crops. Okay, so they were more of an agricultural uh, a people rather than maybe uh, less raising cattle and sheep and whatnot. And we see that and even in our old American history, right? And out in the West, there was always uh, tensions between the cattle people and the farmers, right? Uh, there was even tension between the cattle people and the, and the shepherds, the, sh- the, the sheep, right? Um, so we, we don't need to, we just know that Joseph says, tell him you are shepherds. And so he's preparing them to meet the, the most uh, important person in the country. Jo- J- Joseph is like the second in rank only to Pharaoh. Joseph picks five of his brothers to meet with Pharaoh and the brothers explain to Pharaoh their occupations and, and tell him just as, as Joseph had commanded them. And, and they explain, uh, they describe how bad the famine was in their land of Canaan. So that's why they came here with their flocks and their herds. And then Pharaoh instructs Joseph to settle them in the land of Ramses, which is at the time Moses wrote this, which was, that's what it was called, Ramses. But of course, before that, it was known as Goshen. And then he also tells Joseph, look, if any of your brothers are really good as shepherds, put them in charge of my livestock. Okay? Uh, you, you know they had, we can't say that the Egyptians didn't have any livestock because we know later on in the plagues they had livestock. Their livestock was um, ruined by the plagues. And then, curiously, Jacob is brought before Pharaoh. And it doesn't show him, um, he's not afraid. You know, a lot of people get nervous when they go into the presence of royalty. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, spending time in the military, I saw that. You know, a lot of people are afraid when they go into high-ranking people's offices and whatnot. And, well, generally, if you're calling to somebody's high-ranking office, <laughs> you, you probably have good reason to be afraid. But people get, tend to get nervous. Here, Jacob does what? Curiously, he pronounces a blessing on Pharaoh as if he's the superior one. He blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks him about his length of age. We read, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. 
Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojournings. That's verse 9 of chapter 47. Philip Eveson explains Jacob's answer. Abraham was 175 when he died, and Isaac was 180. Life had also been evil or hard, more than his father and grandfather. He had experienced severe troubles, including escaping from his brother, an unhappy married life, the death of his favorite wife in childbirth, and mourning the loss of a son he assumed had been killed. Jacob's words were not a complaint. He was merely stating the truth, end quote. He had had, at least the last 22, 23 years, had had a very hard life. You know, he, if you look at it, a lot of his hardships had been his own fault. I mean, he had to flee from his brother. Why? Because he had stole his birthright. He had stole his blessing. And before he leaves, curiously enough, interestingly enough, we, we see him giving Pharaoh another blessing. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And then we come to Joseph's benevolent rule. Now he's been reunited with his family. He's been very uh, forgiving of his family. He's been very loving of his family. He's been benevolent now with his family. Now we see that benevolence is going to be shared with the whole country of Egypt. Our attention is now turned to Joseph's wise rule. Davis writes, The focus now turns to Joseph's dealings with the Egyptians. The famine having reached its height, the Egyptians realized that there was no hope apart from Joseph. The famine brought to them the place, brought them to the place where they were willing to submit to him at all costs and on any terms. They had come to an end of themselves. Egypt was bankrupt and its condition was hopeless. End quote. What does that sound like? The famine was very severe. All the people came to Joseph for food, and he sold them food. And when they ran out of money, he sold them food for their land, their livestock, excuse me. And when they ran out of their livestock, he sold them food for their land. And finally, he sold them food for their very lives. They became servants of Pharaoh, slaves of Pharaoh. And, and Joseph didn't get rich in all of this. He didn't keep the money for himself. He didn't keep the livestock for himself. He didn't keep the land for himself. He gave it all to Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh's land. And, and still, Moses is writing to this very day, that, that same tax is required. We'll see. Right? So now, Pharaoh owns all the land and all the people, not just in theory, but but now he really owns them because... They sold themselves to, for their own survival. In all this, Joseph was honest and fair. And the people of Egypt realized that. We see in verse 25, because they said to him, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. 
They agreed to his terms. They agreed to his terms. They realized that that was their only chance. He was being fair. He was keeping them alive by selling them this food. And our passage ends in verses 27 28 with these words. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob's, the years of his life were 147. So that was kind of a whirlwind tour through these three chapters here. We've saw in the passage today how the nation of Israel ends up in Egypt and how Pharaoh, for Joseph's sake, has generously given them the best of the land. We saw how hopeless the situation was for the people of Egypt and how they had come to Joseph for salvation. When I mean salvation, I mean physical salvation. This hopeless situation in Egypt gives us a clear picture of the world we live in today. You look around you. There is a spiritual famine. Our society is desolate when it comes to the things of the Spirit, when it comes to the things of God. We're, our society is spiritually and morally bankrupt. Who apart from Jesus Christ have no hope of life. The sinner must be willing to forsake all. Just as the Egyptians were willing to give up everything for this food, the sinner must be willing to forsake everything, give up everything for the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. He is the only way of salvation for those lost. The way to procure this salvation is to cry out to God for mercy. Just as the Egyptians met Joseph on Joseph's terms, so the sinner must meet Christ on Christ's terms. You don't come to Christ on your own terms, but on His. The sinner must come to the end of him or herself. We read, For the, by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20 You must come to the end of yourself. You must realize that Christ is your only hope. And there's hope in no other. The sinner must see their helpless condition and see their desperate need for the Savior. Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13 The Lord Jesus commands... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. <clears throat> Sinner, repent of your sins today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's word promises you <clears throat> will be saved. What is the gospel? Jesus, sent by his Father, came to this earth, <clears throat> took on flesh, lived the perfect life, and then died in the place of sinners. He became sin for us, the Bible says. He took our punishment. 
And the proper response to this glorious gospel is to repent of our sins and to believe that there is salvation in no other but in Christ in Christ alone. <coughs> Dear saints, those of you who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who do have a saving relationship with Him, just like Israel, we are sojourners in a foreign land. Just like Israel moved to Egypt and was in a foreign land, so we are sojourning here in a foreign land. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Just as Israel grew and physically prospered in Egypt, so too we as God's chosen people can spiritually grow and prosper in this land of our sojourning. Let us keep Christ Jesus ever before us and totally rely on Him. As we faithfully obey Him, let His promise to us be an ever-present source of comfort and peace. And what is that promise? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for giving us the promises of your word. Father, thank you for uh, showing us in your word that you always keep your promises. That you, you will do everything that you have said that you will do. And so, Father, now we, we pray that the lost would flee to Christ. Because you promise that if they do so, you will save them. And Father, we are also promised that Christ will return again for his bride. And so we, we know in faith that you will keep that promise. Christ will keep that promise. And so we look forward to his return with great joy and anticipation. But in the meantime, Father, give us strength to walk daily in this world. Give us the strength and courage to remain unspotted from this world. Father, that, that, that we are not separate from it, but, but more importantly, that we are not of it. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. And now, Father, we pray that you receive all the honor and glory and receive our worship, Father, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. And let's sing together, let's stand and sing together hymn number 151, Jesus, Lover of My Soul.